Thanks for joining me on Chai with Hasi, where we explain current events through the lens of the past. Obviously, COVID has a pretty big impact on how we live our day-to-day lives. And in our last pod, we talked about how COVID was disproportionately affecting minorities in the U.S. And it kind of feels like there's no end in sight. When watching the news, which, you know, quite frankly, can be kind of depressing, we hear a wide variety of opinions on issues, on how to fight COVID, how to best return kids to school, how to protect the economy. And unfortunately, I do not have those answers. But this isn't the first time our country or the world at large has asked those exact same questions. In fact, nearly a hundred years ago, the world faced a very similar devastating pandemic known as the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu, which broke out towards the end of World War I, claimed anywhere from 50 to 100 million lives. So at the time, that was about 3 to 6% of the global world population. In contrast, World War I, which was from 1914 to 1918, claimed about 20 million lives. So the Spanish flu killed anywhere from two to five times more people than a global wide war. And the most peculiar thing about this disease, unlike COVID, which has a higher mortality rate with older individuals, the second wave of the Spanish flu killed mostly those who were in the age group of 20 to 40. Specifically in the United States, the disease killed over 675,000 people, which is more than all the wars the United States has fought in the 20th and 21st century, including both world wars, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. A quick side note, we probably shouldn't be calling it the Spanish flu. See, Spain was neutral in World War I, so unlike other countries that were involved in the Great War, Spain did not heavily censor its news. So when Spain published its death rates, the entire world was in shock and all pointed at Spain and said, hey, these guys must be the culprit for this deadly disease. Ironically, the Spanish actually referred to this as the French flu because they thought it came from France. But the first documented case was actually in Kansas, in a military camp. There were soldiers who were then shipped all over Europe, and the rest is in the history books. I know some call COVID the Chinese flu. Using the same logic, should we not call the spanish flu the never mind uh so i'm really happy to have you join me for today's pod as we uncover the origins of the spanish influenza virus how the world responded and how it compares to sars covid 2 the virus that causes covid 19 so here we go The exact origins of the Spanish flu, they're kind of debated, but many, many historians point to Haskell County, Kansas, where it's argued that the flu moved from infected pigs to humans. Haskell County was mostly full of very, very poor farmers and many raised pigs. And at some point, the flu moved from an infected pig to a human. 
the process of moving from pig to human is called entigenic shift. And this process actually has three parts. A bird, a pig, and a human. <laughs> kind of kind of sounds like someone's uh, recent cognitive test. But I digress. See, the flu virus that grows in birds usually cannot grow in humans because the surface keys of bird viruses don't match human cell receptors. But pigs, they're unique in that they have surface keys that can open both bird and human flu viruses, which allows pig cells to combine genes from both human and bird flu viruses to essentially create a new combined flu virus. And that's what most likely happened here. So things got so bad in Haskell County that the medical staff actually contacted the USPH for help, but their request fell on deaf ears. Haskell County was sparsely populated, so the disease ran its course on the small town, and unfortunately, that wasn't the end. See, the United States was actively engaged in World War I and looking to supply the war efforts in Europe. So this included men from Haskell County, Kansas, who reported to Camp Funston about 300 miles away. Camp Funston at the time had already 56,000 men, and it was already over capacity. But then came a very, very cold winter in 1918. And then the commander made all of the men sleep inside the barracks. That makes sense because it's a very cold winter. But in six days, in six short days, the outbreak started to begin, which eventually sickened thousands and killed 50 relatively young and healthy men. Not an awfully high death rate, but this was only the first wave. As the first wave started to calm down in Camp Funston, U.S. soldiers were then sent overseas to start landing in France, and then started to move all over Europe by rail. As many as you know, most of World War I was fought in the trenches, where soldiers were closely huddled and they fought literally for every inch. But also, this was the perfect backdrop to spread a disease like the flu. The Spanish flu transmitted very similarly like the common flu today through droplets when people sneeze, cough, or sometimes even talk. So you could imagine if people are huddled together really closely in trenches, the flu will spread like wildfire. By July 1918, the flu had traveled all the way to China and even sub-Saharan Africa. But see, the thing about the flu is that it easily mutates. And one of the reasons why we're encouraged to take influenza shots every year is because the flu can quickly change into a different strain, making a previous serum ineffective or even possibly useless. And that's exactly what happened here the flu mutated into a much more contagious and dangerous form. But before we dive in, I want to take a quick break here. Guys, it's very important we vote, especially for the presidential election in 2020. Please make sure you read the issues and make sure that you're registered and everything is in order for you to vote. 
I know a lot of people are scared to vote during COVID times, and I get it. Depending on where you are, there are two types of ballots that can be mailed in if not voting in person. Absentee ballots and mail-in ballots. Absentee ballots must be requested. So in 29 states, they can be requested without reason. 16 need a specific reason as to why you can't be there in person. This includes Texas. Then there are mail-in ballots where some states automatically send all registered voters a ballot. Please make sure you know when your ballots must be submitted in order to be counted. In Texas, it must be postmarked by election day. But let's say in Oklahoma, it must be received by election day. So it all really depends on where you live. Just to put some color on this, in 2016, there were 33 million ballots that were mailed in and about 74, 75,000 were rejected because they were too late. So please make sure that if you're voting by mail, you at least allow one week before the election day to send in your ballot so it gets counted. So even if your state allows to request a ballot less than a week before the election, make sure you allow ample amount of time for your ballots to be casted and counted by the election officials. But if you do have any questions about the upcoming election, about voting, how to register, I highly encourage you to check a variety of online resources, anything from USA.gov to rockthevote.org. Those are great resources. Now back to the pod. By the summer of 1918, as mentioned earlier, the flu had mutated to become much deadlier than the first wave. But there was a lot of confusion within the medical community. Doctors all over the globe argued that this really couldn't be the flu because the symptoms weren't the same. The symptoms, which were originally fever and cough, had evolved to severe respiratory issues. See, we now know that the Spanish flu replicated deep in the lungs and led to an overreaction of the immune system called a cytokine storm, which leads to an overwhelming inflammatory response, which fills the lungs with fluid, restricts airspace, and leads to oxygen deprivation. In fact, some people became so oxygen-deprived that they started to turn blue. And this condition is called cyanosis. And for this reason, this disease was given the nickname the Blue Death. Because once someone started to turn blue, doctors knew that there wasn't anything else they could do to save the patient. And the scariest thing about the disease? Once you got it, you went down quick. Epidemiologist and professor at Yale, Charles Winslow, stated that he had several cases where people were perfectly healthy and then dead within 12 hours. And remember, there was no reliable test to confirm if you had the flu, so there was really no treatment, there was really no medication that could be provided, so all efforts to fight the spread of this disease were non-medical interventions. Things like wearing masks and social distancing. And remember, this is in 1918, about 100 years ago. Very similar themes to the status quo. 
By the end of August, World War I had ended and the U.S. saw an influx of soldiers, citizens, immigrants from war-torn Europe, but also came the arrival of this new evolved flu. Week after week, countless ships arrived all across the harbors of the eastern coastline. By September, Boston Pier was forced to quarantine. At the time, military personnel were allowed to move around, so when they went to nearby Camp Devons, in a couple of weeks, 75% of the men had to be hospitalized. The hospital, which is a military hospital, keep in mind, was staffed to treat 1,200 men, but it was treating 6,000. The army then quarantined Camp Devon, but again... Military officers went to Camp Grant in Illinois and got another 4,000 soldiers sick. Then some from Camp Grant went to Camp Hancock in Alabama, where at least 10% of the men died. I did say 10%, but the camp literally stopped counting deaths. Similar outbreaks were occurring all over the U.S., but the first major public outbreak occurred in Philadelphia. See, the federal government just went through an expensive war and they needed money. And one of the ways they thought they could raise money was by issuing war bonds, where a citizen would give money to the government who would then pay back the amount with some interest. Each city was told to raise X amount in war bonds. So in order to increase public awareness of the war bonds, the city of Brotherly Love, a.k.a. Philly, wanted to throw a massive parade celebrating this victory in World War I. Public health officials begged city management to cancel the event, but local authorities ignored their plea. The director of public health for the city just called it the normal flu, and boy was he wrong. On September 29th, the parade happened, and within three days, all 31 city hospitals had run out of beds. Three days. Hospitals stopped letting people in. They ran out of medicine. First-year medical students immediately became responsible for floors of patients. It was a complete mess. Five days after the parade, all public gatherings were stopped, Schools, churches, bars, all closed. Three weeks after the parade, 4,500 people from Philly had died in three weeks. They had died so quickly that it was impossible to bury them fast enough. The disease spread all over the U.S., and it took a huge toll. Things got so bad in New York that once they reached 33,000 deaths, they stopped counting. But for every city like Philly, there are some glimmers of hope of cities that did the complete opposite. So San Francisco. San Francisco was one of the cities that responded very well to the Spanish flu and they reacted proactively. They listened to their public health officials. They issued a naval quarantine before they had any cases reported because they figured it would be coming from these ships, just like what happened in Philadelphia. The local government made every effort to educate its people on hand-washing and social distancing. The city handed out masks. Police forced people to wear masks at gunpoint. Sometimes even shooting people who wouldn't wear masks. It's crazy. But it shows how important wearing masks actually is for the public health. 
The public health director closed all schools, stopped all public gatherings, and divided the city into different districts, where each district was given its own support staff. So in the case the infection came, it would be isolated, hopefully, within a given district. Initially, things were looking good, but then, of course, there's immense pressure to open up the city to help out the local economy. So the city reluctantly did. People stopped wearing masks and stopped social distancing. The city was forced to reintroduce mandatory masks after a month because of the sharp increase in infections and deaths in the city. Other cities like St. Louis also took the lead in social distancing measures. Citizens were fined the equivalent of $100 today if they were found not wearing a mask. St. Louis actually commissioned doctors to walk the streets and to help diagnose those who may have potential symptoms. And this all equated to low death rates. In fact, St. Louis's peak death rate was one-fifth of Phillies. But like San Francisco, it also had an increase in death rates after it temporarily relaxed restrictions regarding mask wearing and social distancing. By winter, the death rate started to drop, and by summer of 1919, the second wave had ended. It was then followed by a third and a smaller fourth wave. I think the best way to characterize the negative impact the Spanish flu had on American life is by looking at life expectancy. In 1917, life expectancy in the United States was 51 years. Only two years later, in 1919, it was 39 years. It dropped by over a decade in two years. One thing that I mentioned in the pod was that one peculiar thing about the Spanish flu was that it killed a lot of people in the 20 to 40 year age range, specifically the age of 28. Historians believe that 27 years prior, there was another strain of the flu called the Russian flu. And it is believed by scientists that this version of the flu actually impaired the immune systems of infants so that when the Spanish flu came in 1918, it was particularly devastating on those immune systems that were already compromised. Likewise, children who were born around the time of the Spanish flu were found to be 25% more likely to suffer from heart attacks as adults than the cohort immediately preceding or following them. So there's always going to be long-term consequences that we do not immediately recognize. By 1920, the disease had taken its course. Those who were infected had either died or developed some degree of immunity. I want to pause here for a second and talk about a term that we often hear in the news, quote-unquote herd immunity. As Dr. Pankia explains, the concept of herd immunity is to create extremely large groups of people who have immunity against an infectious agent, which means one of two things. One, they have developed immunity through vaccination, which obviously does not exist right now for COVID, or two, allowing people to get infected and recover so that they have antibodies so that if they encounter the infectant's agents again, they won't get sick. And depending on the model in which you're using, you need anywhere from 60 to 70% of the population to be immune in order to protect the remaining segment. 
But see, there, there's a fundamental problem here, and that is you cannot determine who gets infected, and therefore you are leaving large segments of usually older, vulnerable segments of the population standing for themselves. It is also very important to remember that besides rare exceptions, we as a collective society have not achieved herd immunity through infection, but by vaccination. This is how we got rid of smallpox, measles, polio. Actually, wait, measles was eliminated in the United States in 2000, but we uh, we have some people who don't get their kids' vaccination shots. So now there are outbreaks all over the U.S. So we actually eliminated it, but it's back. So please make sure you, you get your kids their shots because if it wasn't for COVID the return of measles would probably be a story as well. Also, this concept of herd immunity by infection assumes that once you have COVID, you will develop antibodies and somehow not be able to pass on the infection. And there's nothing in medical literature to date that supports this notion. There's also nothing that suggests that once you have COVID, you can't get it a second time. In fact, today, Hong Kong researchers have found the first COVID-19 reinfection case. So if you do get some kind of immunity through all of this, uh, you also have to ask yourself, how long will it last? With viruses adapting and evolving so quickly, is it reasonable to assume that it will last a lifetime? Probably not. So aiming for herd immunity right out of the gate with no vaccines is just hoping for the best, honestly, and it's really not a strategy. Even once a community has reached herd immunity, people will still get infected. You have to realize that. It's just going to be at a lower rate. So let's take a quick look at Sweden, the darling of the herd immunity movement. Sweden relied on its population to stop the spread of COVID. Its argument was that the best way to fight the disease was to build up herd immunity. So this is the strategy. A majority of the population is going to get infected, and hopefully they are safe from reinfection. Everything in Sweden remained open with the prediction that 40% of the population in the nation's capital would get the disease and develop antibodies by May. But actually it was 15%. And what ended up happening is that Sweden has higher rates of infection, higher rates of hospitalization, and higher mortality rates than its neighbors. So herd immunity through infection, not our best idea. Let's take a quick break here. In this age of fake news, alternate realities, whatever you want to call it, subjective truth, trying to get to the bottom of any issue is a lot harder than it should be. My favorite website to check the facts is politifact.com. It shows the statements of candidates on a wide variety of topics and gauges how truthful those statements are. My favorite part of the website is that it also fact checks trending posts or images about candidates and their positions. So if there's a post about Obama's running for a third term, PolitiFact will actually research that. But back to the pod. Lastly, I wanted to compare COVID-19 and the Spanish flu. Though COVID and the Spanish flu are caused by different viruses, they can cause both acute respiratory disease. In addition to the acute illness, however, both can cause long-term damage. As I mentioned earlier, the Spanish flu 
did show a higher rate of heart attack for those babies that were born in the year of 1918. One important distinction, however, is that COVID is less lethal than the Spanish flu, but it is a lot more contagious. The term you might have seen in the news is CFR or case fatality rate, which essentially measures the proportion of individuals diagnosed with the disease and those who die from the disease, which is simply expressed as number of deaths from disease divided by number of confirmed cases from the disease. Of course, CFR can vary by country and by age, but in the US, COVID has about a CFR of 3%. And it's really hard to figure out what the CFR of the Spanish flu was because, again, so it was impossible to diagnose the flu. But medical historians put it at 2 to 3%, but that's a best guess. But the CFR of the common flu in the U.S. is 0.1%, or 30 times less than COVID. And this is just one of the main reasons why COVID and normal flu are not the same disease and they should just not be compared as such. Another key difference between the two is the incubation time for initial symptoms to start showing up. For COVID, it's anywhere from 2 to 14 days, whereas in the Spanish flu, it could be within hours. In a way, the long incubation time actually makes COVID more dangerous because people don't know that they're contagious while still being asymptomatic. Another key term to note is R0, and that is the basic reproduction number. The scientific community uses the term R0 to measure the potential transmission of a disease. So if R0 is greater than 1, that simply means that the infection will cause more than one infection. Early estimates of CDC is that COVID's RO value is between 2 to 3, meaning that the average person will infect 2 to 3 more people. Medical historians believe that the R0 for Spanish flu was one, one and a half, so half as contagious. So yeah, I know this all sounds gloomy and terrible. I mean, it is what it is, as uh, quoting a famous historian. We've lost over 170,000 people here in the U.S., and how we live our lives has drastically changed, but there is hope. Viruses have genetic material in the form of RNA, and when RNA viruses multiply, they tend to have many, many mutations. These rapid mutations again explain why we need flu shots every year. But research labs working together all across the world are working to map the genome of the coronavirus, and they have found that COVID-19 has significantly fewer mutations, about 10 mutations in 10,000 potential locations. Now you may ask, why is this important? This suggests that maybe, just maybe, future peaks won't be driven by mutations that gave rise similar to the second wave of the Spanish flu. And fingers crossed, this makes it a little easier for the medical community to come up with a vaccine as opposed to making a vaccine for a moving target. And guys, I, I know times are rough. They're hard. But we have to believe that we're going to get through this. That as long as we all practice social distancing, wearing masks, we will buy valuable time to come up with a vaccine. 
Right now, all around the world, they're testing more than 165 different vaccines and 10 have actually reached phase three, where a vaccine is actually given to thousands of people and compared to those who've been given a placebo to see how effective the new drug is to protect against the coronavirus. The New York Times actually has this really neat vaccine tracker, and I'll be sure to attach a link in my uh, work cited. Guys, you know that I'm not a medical profession, so I did have a lot of help on reviewing the medical contents of this pod. So I'd like to give a, a huge shout out to Drs. Samia, Dr. Rachel, uh, Dr. Vasanti, and Dr. Shruti for helping me uh, peer review this pod and acting as my medical review board. Uh, you guys are awesome. And I love you guys. As always, I'll always add my we're excited to the pod note so you can note it out. If you do like the pod, please rate, review, and subscribe. Stay safe, my friends. Remember to vote. And I promise you, we're going to get through this. Till next time. See you later.